morning we will be focusing on 2 Samuel chapter 24 as we are wrapping up our series in David this week and next. But before we jump into that, you should, on um, scattered throughout the sanctuary today, were handouts that look like this. Um, if you did not get one of these, uh, Victor and Jerry Murphy will be passing them out if you need one of these handouts. What these are is that there is an outline for sermon notes on the front side, and then the community group guide that will be discussed in the community groups throughout this week is on the subsequent pages here. Um, and so the community group leaders would like you to have at least reviewed the questions before coming to the group and have given some thought to them. Those will really help our group discussions as our community groups are starting up this week. But you also may be wondering why on earth they have these mushroom-shaped holes on them, and when you open them up, why they look like barbells. And the reason for that is because these, this fits into these sermon notebook guides. Um, you can purchase these after the service. They're $4. This corresponds to the ARC system from Staples and the Circus system um, for, from Lenovo, for those of you that are familiar with that. Um, but what these are, though, is there is a cover. There is a cover sheet where we need you to write your name and phone number. We actually do need that because when you leave it here, it helps everybody. Um, and then what happens is that each week, each Sunday morning, there will be a stand out front where the sermon notes and discussion guides for the week are available for you to pick up as, on your way in. And these two things just nicely um, fit together completely as they tie together, and they do so in a way that doesn't make any noise, which is great for the sanctuary. And then once you do it, you can have your notes from each week, your, your community group discussion guide, and you're good to go. If you want to upgrade, you know, you can go to Staples and get the uh, ARC system with day planners and other things, or all, all kinds of variety of other organizational tools are available to you. But our goal is just to have an effective way for you to take notes and also to use those in your community groups. Now, let's turn our attention. And these will be available after the service in the foyer, and they're $4 a piece if you want to use one of ours. Um, our focus here today is on 2 Samuel chapter 24. As we are wrapping up our life of David this week and next week, we come to this passage where the wrath of God is exposed in a very raw way. Follow along with me as I read God's word, 2 Samuel chapter 24. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and number the people, that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my lord the king still sees it. But why does my lord the king delight in this thing? The king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. And here's what they did. They head out from Jerusalem. They went east. They went south. They went north up to the top. They went south. They went east again, back up to Jerusalem. We pick up again at verse 8. <laughs> Just a whirlwind tour, you know. If I had said they were in the land of the Hittites, would that have been clearer? All right, verse 8. Um, verse 8. So when they had gone through all the lands, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. Verse 9, and Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. 
And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done, but now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And when the David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of men. So the Lord set a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time, and there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand towards Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity. And he said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, it is enough, now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned, and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word as the Lord commanded. And when Aruna looked down, He saw the king and his servants coming on towards him. And Aruna went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Aruna said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? And David said, To buy the threshing floor from you, in order to build an altar to the Lord, that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Aruna said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering, and the threshing sledges and yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Aruna gives to the king. And Aruna said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. But the king said to Aruna, No, I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings So the Lord responded to the plea for the land, and the plague was averted from Israel. Let's pray for God's blessing on his word. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would send your spirit into this time that we have sent apart, that we would understand this very uncomfortable truth about your wrath, and Lord, that we would understand your mercy that wraps your wrath and surrounds it. So, Lord, speak through your word that we would have understanding. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The wrath of God. Certainly a topic that is taboo in our culture, and it certainly seems that it's something that Christians in the last several decades have tacitly agreed that, yeah, this really is uncomfortable, and we're just all going to agree that we're just never going to speak about it. But then again... I don't ever suppose that there was a time that the wrath of God was a popular topic. You know, I don't think there was a time that when, when preachers, pastors, prophets began to talk of the wrath of God that people would say, oh, I love to hear what God's judgment would be on the actions in the course of my life. 
I don't imagine that that time ever occurred. But today, the wrath of God is such an uncomfortable, taboo subject that, should, that people feel should not be spoken of. I suppose the word that's a little bit more acceptable today is outrage. This past week, as I was looking at news headlines, I saw two news articles that said, where is the outrage about a given issue? Another article, where is the outrage? And then last night, as I was finishing up my sermon, I googled where is the outrage to find that article, and I found that in the last 24 hours, there were over a dozen news articles entitled, where is the outrage? I suppose that seems to be more acceptable than the idea of wrath. Indeed, author and writer Fleming Rutledge gives this observation. She says, a slogan of our times is, where's the outrage? It has been applied to everything from big pharma's market manipulation to CEOs' astronomical wealth to police officers' stonewalling. Where's the outrage? Inquire many commentators wondering why congressmen, officials, and ordinary voters seem so indifferent. Why has the gap between rich and poor become so huge? Why are so many mentally ill people slipping through the crack? Why does gun violence continue to be a hallmark of American culture? Why are there so many innocent people on death row? Why are our prisons filled with a preponderance of black and Hispanic men? Where's the outrage? The public is outraged all over cyberspace about all kinds of things that annoy us. It's outrage over the NIMBY syndrome, which is not in my backyard. But outrage is in the heart of God, go unnoticed and unaddressed, and dare I say, even viewed as inappropriate. She continues, if we are resistant to the idea of the wrath of God, we might pause to reflect the next time that we are outraged about something, about our property values being threatened, or our children's educational opportunities being limited, or our tax breaks being eliminated, eliminated. All of us are capable of anger about something. God's anger, however, is pure. It does not have the maintenance of privilege as its object, but goes out on behalf of those who have no privileges. The wrath of God is not an emotion that flares up from time to time as though God has temper tantrums. Rather, it is a way of describing the absolute enmity that God has against all wrong and that he has come to set matters right. And if you do a quick study of the Bible, a quick look in a concordance, you would discover that there are more references to the anger of God, the wrath of God, the fury of God, far more references to those things than there are references to God and his love or God and his tenderness. So it's an important topic for us, important scriptural teaching for us to understand. Well, why? Because this text makes clear that one of the reasons why we desperately need to understand the wrath of God is because my sin deserves God's wrath. The sin of the people deserved God's wrath. David's sin deserved God's wrath. Look at what it says, verse 1. Again, it's already happened before, again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. And then when his wrath strikes in the form of the pestilence, this is what it says. The Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men, quite a dent in David's census numbers. 
But the Word of God does not hesitate to boldly proclaim that which makes us uncomfortable. It doesn't hesitate to discuss and declare the wrath of God. Consider this passage from the book of Nahum, one of many. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversary and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will by no means clear the guilty. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him, but with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Yet people respond today and say, well, that's just the God of the Old Testament. That's just this Old Testament wrathful God. Well, here's the God of the New Testament, as Paul writes, that when Jesus Christ returns with his angels, he will return in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then people try to discredit the New Testament and say, well, those are just the writings of Paul, the writings of Peter. I'm the one who follows Jesus. Well, here is what Jesus says about those who are not in him, that they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and away from the glory of his might. It's a concept that is throughout Scripture by every author of Scripture. The wrath of God is awesome. The wrath of God is terrible. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hand of the Lord. Well, how do we understand this? How do we understand the wrath of God? What Scripture makes clear is that God's wrath is his right and necessary reaction to moral evil. Americans get on, we get on our hobby horse, and we talk of righteous indignation, that there is a time to get mad. In fact, that there are times when it is wrong for you not to be indignant. It is wrong for you not to be mad. Hmm. Look at the caveat that we give ourselves. But consider the character of God. Consider God in his character. Would God be holy? if he did not vehemently react to the evil that is in this world? Would God be morally perfect if he were indifferent to the wickedness in this place? Would God be a God of love if he was not enraged by that which destroys his children and destroys his creation? No, all these things that, yes, God is merciful, his character. He is a God of justice. He is holy. He is a God of love. And necessarily, he is a God of wrath. J.I. Packer helps summarize the teaching this way in his book, Knowing God, Christian classic, a book that every Christian should read in their lifetime. He says this, God's wrath in the Bible is never the capricious, self-indulgent, irritable, morally ignoble thing that human anger so often is. It is instead a right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. And the reason why Scripture makes this clear is it says that Scripture says that, that the wrath of God should be evident to everybody because it is not hidden. Paul in Romans writes, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men. That it is apparent that people who go to church and those who don't know go to church should be aware 
of the wrath of God as it is revealed through the created order. It is not hidden. And for each and every person, the wrath of God is to be feared because we deserve it. As Paul writes, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What was it that invoked God's wrath in 2 Samuel chapter 24? It was the sin of the people. It was the sin of David himself. And the result was that the pestilence came across the land, 70,000 killed. Again, quite a dent in David's number. We need to understand why the Bible speaks so much of this. And we need to understand that my sin deserves God's wrath. We also need to understand that I am wholly responsible for my sin. David was wholly responsible for his sin. Now, we may look at this passage and say, what was wrong with David taking a census? He was the king of the country. The short answer is we don't know why it was wrong. It's not clear. Most likely, it was because it demonstrated a lack of trust in the Lord and a wrongful pride that David had in his military forces and military prowess. But Scripture's not clear why, in this passage, why this was wrong. And I am not going to project into the Word of God something that it does not clearly say. I'm not going to preach on something that is just simply there by inference. So, too, when you are reading your Bible, you should not read into it things that aren't there in the passage. It's also why, spoiler alert, that I'm not going to be, at this point, talking about, in this message, talking about how David could be held responsible, and yet, verse 1, where it says that God incited David to do these things. There's other passages that address that more clearly, not this one. While these things are unclear from this passage, what is very clear is that what David did was sinful. It's very clear that was sinful. In fact, Joab, David's loyal and somewhat immoral commander, after he gets the command to go count the people, Joab says, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are. But why does my Lord the king delight in this thing? Joab knew it was wrong. David knew it was sinful. After he does it, he says, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Joab knew it was wrong. David knew it was wrong. And God confirms it that after he confesses this, God's prophet Gad goes to David and says, choose three things. Choose one of the three things that I offer to you. It was very clear that, he, that what David did was sinful. And it was also very clear that David was wholly responsible for David's, understa- uh, for David's sin. It was his fault and no one else's. Yes, there are times in life when sin may be understandable, but it is never excusable. She did it first is just as much a poor excuse for adults as it is for toddlers. He did it first. Well, I wouldn't react sinfully if they didn't sin against me the first time. If I didn't have to deal with this person, if I didn't have to live with this person, if they didn't do it first, I wouldn't have to do it. You are wholly responsible for your own actions regardless of the other person. And we need to know this, that I, you, we are wholly responsible for our sin. Because for you to have any hope in appeasing the wrath of God, you must first acknowledge that you and you alone are wholly responsible and without excuse for your sin and that, yes, you do deserve the wrath of God. But what is astounding in this passage is not simply these truths that Scripture makes apparent again and again, but the way this chapter is laid out. For the very heart of this chapter is verse 15, where it focuses on the Lord inflicting wrath on Israel. But what's remarkable 
is that this verse and the, the, the structure of this chapter highlights that this verse is at, at the center. For you English majors and philosophy majors, here is the structure of the chapter. I know you guys, this is great stuff. You guys are like, give me more. Okay? And what the structure of the chapter lays out is that it uses a chiastic stru chiasmatic structure that's going on here. We can go into that more and follow up with me after the service. But what you, the point is this. At the center of the chapter, the emphasis of this chapter is on the wrath of God being inflicted. But what's remarkable is that the wrath of God is surrounded by God's mercy and the study of God's mercy. And quite literally in this chapter, the wrath of God is wrapped in his mercy, as Ralph Davis astutely observes. That this chapter is about God's wrath being wrapped in his mercy. What is the implication of that for us? Is that when you are faced with calamity, when you are faced with disaster, when you are faced with sin and the guilt of your own sin and the struggle of your own sin, how do we respond to that? We need to respond exactly the same way David did, by throwing ourselves on the mercy of God. Dare I say even more crassly that we need to go all in and belly flop under the mercy of God. Now, if you've been coming to Cornerstone for the last couple weeks, you will know that this is not the first time that I've used that phrase, that we need to belly flop under the mercy of God. It's because this isn't the first time that David did it. In fact, the first time that David did it was in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 22, after he had committed his affair with Bathsheba and plotted the murder of her husband Uriah and committed treason and all those things. And the prophet comes to David and renders the Lord's judgment against him that the child will die. What does David do? David throws himself on the mercy of God. And he prays and fasts day and night, belly flopping, all in on the mercy of God. And his servants are puzzled because when, the when he, their son finally dies, he's like, do we tell him, do we not tell him? David figures out that he dies. And they say, why were you fasting when the child was, why were you fasting then but not when the child has died? And what did David respond? He said, well, I fasted while the child was alive. Why? Because I thought that maybe God would be gracious and merciful and spare the life of the child. But the child still died, didn't he? The child still died. And here is David, again, faced with God's wrath and discipline. And the last time he did this, God did not respond the way that God, David wanted God to respond. But that did not alter David's confidence in the character of God. Consider how astounding this is. David is about to meet God's wrath. He is about to meet God's wrath, and he is convinced of God's mercy. Look at what David says. I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord. For his mercy is great, but let me not fall in the hand of men. David is about to meet the wrath of God, and he has astounding trust and astounding confidence in the character of God. Faced with the wrath of God, he throws himself on the mercy of God. And the fact that he did this one time before and it didn't turn out the way that he wanted doesn't dissuade David's faith. In fact, there is a bigger wrath coming upon him right now. And what does David do? He's not dissuaded, but he doubles down on the mercy of God. He doesn't respond the way that so many of us would respond and say something like this. You know what? I can't believe in a God of wrath. I, you know, I cannot believe in a God that I can't completely understand. 
You don't hear David saying phrases that people give sentiment towards today. I cannot believe in a God that doesn't fit into my self-defined little box of how I think God should work. I can't believe in a God that is bigger than what I can comprehend. I can't believe in a God of wrath as so commonly said today. But David doesn't do that. Astoundingly, he is faced with the wrath of God and he throws himself full abandon, spread eagle, extra big jump off the diving board, and splats himself on the mercy of God in the disasters of life, in the traumas of life, in the times when the sins of life. Is there a better place to fall than in the awesome? Is there a better place to fall than in the awesome and terrible? Is there a better place to fall than in the awesome and terrible and merciful hand of the living God? Is there a better place to fall? Regardless of what you have done, regardless of the guilt that you are carrying, throw yourself under the mercy of God. I have to agree with the scholar by the name of Ralph Davis. He says, you know, we hear these things to trust in the mercy of God, but at our core, we have what he calls a gorilla view of God's mercy. We have a, a gorilla view of God's mercy. You might recall that a couple years ago at the Brookfield Zoo in Illinois, there was a three-year-old who was looking at the gorilla exhibit. And he fell 18 feet down into the gorilla pen where there were seven western lowland gorillas in that pen. When the child was taken to the hospital, he was in critical condition, but he was still alert. And the reason why that child was still alert was because there was a seven-year-old female gorilla by the name of Binti who rushed over and picked up the child, cradled the child in her arms, Went gorilla mama on the other gorillas, <laughs> defending the child from the other gorillas. And she carried the child to the door where the zookeepers came through and laid the child by the zookeeper's door and defended the child from the other gorillas. It's amazing. Amazing, I say, working of God's, amazing working of God's grace. It's amazing because we don't really think of gorillas as being kind or being merciful or being compassionate. But Davis puts it this way. We may be grateful to Binti, but we would rather not to trust her with another child, right? We may be grateful to Binti, but would, rather, but would prefer not to trust her with another child, we tend to look upon mercy as a divine exception rather than as the divine character. Not so David. Even in his facing, even in his wrath, David knew he was not facing a gorilla god. He knew that the mercy of God, that he was not a gorilla god, that the mercy of God was not an exception, but was the very nature of the divine character. So for us is that if the mercy of God has gripped you, not and to be clear, this is not if you have grabbed hold of the mercy of God. No, if the mercy of God has gripped you and you are faced with a disaster and you are faced with sin and you're dealing with guilt and you're dealing with the brokenness of your life, the thing to do is to double down on the mercy of God. 
is to, to belly flop upon his character and to throw yourself out there and go all in upon the character and mercy of God because it is your only hope. It's your only hope. God's wrath is wrapped in her mercy. And because it's wrapped in mercy, we must belly flop on the mercy of God. We must also do one other thing this text makes clear, is that we must trust God's sacrifice to satisfy God's wrath. There are two parallel lines of actions that are going on in the story. One of these is David's response to the wrath of God. The other independent storyline is God's response to the wrath of God. We just saw how David in verse 14 threw himself upon the mercy of God. Verse 15 is the infliction of judgment. Verse 16, how God responds. And when the angel stretched out his hand towards Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, It is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. Then what happens? Then David spoke to the Lord. When he saw the angel who was striking the people, certainly this has to be one of the most terrifying human experiences in the history of the world, to come face to face with the angel of death sent by the Lord. And David sees the angel who was striking the people, and he prays to the Lord, not to the angel, Behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Actually, they had done a lot. David just didn't know it. Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. And Gad came that day, the seer, came that day to David and said to him, Go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word as the Lord commanded. There, we need to understand the flow of what's going on here. The Lord is bringing the pestilence by the angel of death that is coming through the land of Israel. He gets to the threshing floor of Aruna, which was outside of Jerusalem on the top of a giant hill. The reason why it was up there as a threshing floor is because it was where Aruna would toss his grain in the air so that the chaff could get blown away. The angel is standing there with his sword. God has stayed the hand of the angel, but the angel is still there. God then sends Gad to go tell David something. And he commands David to build an altar and to make, therefore, to make a sacrifice. So look at these different pieces. Angel of death is at the threshing floor. The wrath of God has stayed, but it is not yet satisfied. Pestilence has ceased, but there is an issue and a tension. Is that the wrath of God needs to be dealt with. It needs to not be put off. It needs to not be delayed. It needs to be satisfied. It needs to be quenched. The theological term for this, it needs to be propitiated. We'll see that word in a Bible verse in a moment. And what propitiation is is it is a sacrifice that bears God's wrath. A sacrifice that bears God's wrath and turns his wrath into favor. Now, at this moment, on the top of this mountain, as they are gathered together, you have the angel of the Lord, the prophet of the Lord, David, all of these things coming together in this climactic moment. And consider at this moment how the character of God is at work. You have God's justice necessitating his wrath. You also have God's love necessitating his wrath. As we said, it will be wholly unloving for God not to have wrath towards that which is destroying his beloved children. So God's wrath and his love, I'm sorry, God's justice and love necessitate his wrath. 
And then what happens is that God's mercy stays the hand of God's wrath. And then not simply that, but then God's grace provides the way for God's wrath to be satisfied. That God himself provides the way for the wrath of God to be dealt with. Hence the altar in verse 25. David built an altar there. The Lord offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea from the land, and the plague was averted from Israel. Do you see what God is doing here and how his character is coming together? What God, what God did in his mercy satisfying, in his mercy and grace satisfying and staying his wrath, that God provides the means to satisfy his own wrath against, his own pe- against people. It was true for specifically for David, but God was working something much bigger than David here. Because what we'd soon find out as you continue through the story of Scripture is that the threshing floor of Aruna that David purchased would soon be the very site that God would command his son David to build, his son Solomon to build a temple upon. So that the people of Israel would have a permanent place to repent, to confess their sin, and to offer sacrifices to satisfy the wrath of God. But there was something much greater than the temple that was going on. Because on that same spot, there would come David's greater son, his own descendant, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would stand on that same very spot and say, there is something greater than the temple that is here. For it is in the Lord Jesus Christ that God not only provided the way for the wrath of God to be satisfied, but God also provides in Jesus Christ the perfect sacrifice in himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. God become flesh, God becoming flesh so that God himself could satisfy the wrath of God and that you could be spared. Jesus Christ, the only one who never sinned, the only one who never earned God's wrath, the only one who never deserved God's wrath as the one who is the sacrificial offering to receive all of God's wrath. God provides the way. As Jesus was walking on the face of the earth. John the Baptist saw him and declared that Jesus is the sacrificial lamb. Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That Jesus is the sacrificial lamb, the perfect offering. Not only that, but Jesus is the temple. The one to reconcile people to God and God to people. The place, the person in whom God dwells through which reconciliation occurs. John 2 Jesus answered them, destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Jesus is the sacrificial lamb. Jesus is the temple. Jesus is the perfect and final sacrifice. Hebrews chapter 10. We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. But... When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifices for his sins, he sat down. Why did he sit down? Because his work was finished. He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. He is the sacrificial lamb. He is the temple. Jesus is the perfect and final sacrifice. Jesus Christ is 
the propitiation that satisfies the wrath of God. Romans 3.23, a very familiar verse to many of you. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. To be received by faith. Jesus is the perfect and final sacrifice. Jesus is the propitiation who satisfies the wrath of God. Jesus is the way to eternal life. Shortly after that famous verse, John 3.16, John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Yes. Yes. God's wrath is terrible. Yes, we deserve God's wrath. But praise God for his mercy. Praise God for the Lord Jesus Christ who satisfies God's wrath and turns his wrath into favor. May we throw ourselves on the mercy of God. May we belly flop with full abandon on the mercy of God. May we wholly and completely entrust ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together.